James. Have you noticed? Have you noticed how blanketing and all-encompassing the messaging around George Floyd was? And that groundswell of common agreeance on the tragic nature of his situation? You've noticed how it hasn't necessarily spread away to other similar incidents with the same energy, right? That it's dying off. Older victims of racial violence by police or otherwise are all of a sudden arguable again. New ones are too. It's questionable again whether shooting a person in the back while they run away is excessive force. Or whether or not the audio of white servicemen or law enforcement officers spouting racially charged hatred, threats of violence, the desire to slaughter, snipe, or see our bodies swinging from trees, whether it proves racism or just frustration as a motivator. <laughs> All these conversations are going back to the way they were before. COVID conspiracies and trampoline shortages. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a bunch of anti-racist allies, but now it's back to fake news. Racism is dead outside of a few bad apples, even if it's a few more than we thought. This is just a distraction from our real problems. Look, Russia. Hey, black people, that Candace Owens makes some good points. Have you heard of her? When we were all scared of a pandemic and we felt that maybe our government was failing to properly protect us either in health or in our finances. Many of you finally saw us. We shared something in common, in common worry, and so you had empathy with us in something else. But now that our kids are in daycare with the nanny or grandma, or you're back at the office and your friend had COVID and it just wasn't that bad, and now that Costco is making you wear a mask in an effort to save lives, somehow infringing on the rights of yours, all of a sudden, Brianna Taylor becomes invisible again. So does Ahmad, my friend Anthony Mealy, or Elijah McClain. We're becoming comfortable again, so other problems seem less important again, too. America seems to be creeping back to the bullshit. Some of you have kept up that energy and that's appreciated, but you're now seeing how short an attention span and how limited a capacity for compassion some of your friends and family really have. And maybe that's troubling you. You've always thought racism was a clear cut evil and so must racist be. But now some of the good people you love and admire have started blurring those lines. Some have jumped clear across it. Like the man that was running for office out of Fairview, Oklahoma here, who hired a band that performs in front of Nazi flags and banners because he said that even though he's aware of the Nazi flag and he does not agree with Nazism, he's willing to overlook that because the band members are all friends of his. I like the music they play and that's that. Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you've, you're the one that's awakened to where you've blurred the lines in the past yourself. And you're now being open and honest about it, but that's causing friction with your friends and loved ones. The sharing and commenting on the same kinds of injustices that we were all on the same page about yesterday is getting a lot more blowback today. 
You've watched example after example of gross injustices and excessive force and racially charged hatred spewed throughout every region of this country in the past couple of weeks. Just to be told that you're being manipulated by the media. Your solutions that you're asking for are too much, too quick. You're effectively being told to get back in your place, to shut up and dribble. Stop being so divisive. Public regression to the mean always happens, but it's never going to stop us. As the song says, we shall overcome. The question is, will it stop you? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe that's the wrong question for you. Maybe you are of the opinion <clears throat> that you're not sure what we could possibly do other than just leave it to God. Unpopular opinion here, but I'm one of those people, this few people that can make this statement without immediately offending a lot of people, so I feel like it's my responsibility to say it. But these random, only God has the answer statements from American Christendom about how the nation should respond to the current events of the day. They hit me the same as a Christian man as all lives matter statements hit me as a black one. I'm not saying that the same people say one that say the other, though there's probably a sizable overlap. What I'm saying, respectfully, is that neither one of those statements really means anything at all. See, both take a positive factoid, something that you wouldn't theoretically argue against. But then they completely dismiss someone else's literal struggle or any need to change course personally or seek to change the national culture collectively. They've said nothing helpful while washing their hands of the entire matter. The only thing these statements accomplish is the feeling the speaker gets having publicly shown themselves as a good Christian or a good neighbor except a lot of the time they've proven the opposite. That all lives matter is obvious. It's an obvious point. All lives should matter. Yet objectively speaking, for the entire history of this country and before it, various lives have mattered less based solely on one characteristic, be that skin color, gender, language, sexual preference. God forbid you stack some of these on top of themselves. All lives matter, but they should matter equally, and they don't. When historic and current evidence proves that lives of African Americans, the descendants of America's once completely lawful slave force and great evil, are intrinsically less valued than our neighbors, the descendants of those who upheld the lawfulness of that evil, whether they can personally trace slave ownership to their history or not, your response of all lives matter really says, well... I mean, we kind of like things the way they are. Your life matters enough. My life matters. What's your point? And when you continue to say these things, it leads to your president saying that the phrase black lives matter is somehow a symbol of hatred instead of a public outcry of grief. Saying that this tactic is dismissive is putting it very lightly. It completely co-ops and rewrites the truth. In a similar fashion, if God has the only answers and those answers can be found in his book, a book written thousands of years ago and remains unchanged, 
or that people just need Jesus to change their heart? Why wouldn't these problems have resolved themselves within at least the Christian church by now? The church has the book, they have Jesus, but they've whitewashed and weaponized it for centuries with no sign of stopping. If our churches are the answer, why in high school did my best friend go back to his home church and they feel the need to lay hands and pray protection over him when he mentioned that his new friend, at nerd boarding school, by the way, not on the block somewhere, was a black kid? Why was a white minister voted out of his church in Mississippi just last month for uttering simple support for the protesting of police brutality and its disproportionality as it's doled out on people of color? Why did a Catholic priest out of Indiana this week refer to us as maggots and parasites and call for the church to stand in unity and solidarity to oppose us globally? 70.6% of Americans identify as Christians. So if belief in God and conversion to Christianity is the answer, why is the problem still so prevalent? Why isn't there a Christianity-shaped hole in systemic racism or personal racism? If these statements are true, that God has and is the answer, then the problem must be that his followers are actively standing in the way of progress. But it's not about whether or not these statements are true. These are smoke screens. When someone says, we, we should sit back and wait on God to do something, we should just pray, study the word, wait for a sign, this is too big for any one person, any one politician, any one movement. Let's put it in God's hands, because all we can do is be nice to the people we run into. All they're really saying is, why should my Christianity push me any further than my random interactions? Surely God can't expect me to actually go out of my way to serve humanity. Besides, what could any of us or our governmental representatives really do to fix these purely human American systems that we set up and have maintained ourselves? It's fully a cop-out. And I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you what your Christian duty is because I don't particularly care for the term. And it's never been enough. The majority of American society has always done their Christian duty by being extremely resistant to changing what fits inside of it, slowly, if ever, adapting and then strictly clamping it off again. Not to beat a dead horse, but Christopher Columbus was doing his Christian duty when a new era of European people of God came upon the promised land and a new era of Canaanite indigenous tribes had to be eradicated. They would build their kingdom with slave labor, like King Solomon did, and Israel was punished for. The rich who felt their position was God-given and entitled them to the ownership of people, well, they were doing their Christian duty too. The poor whites that they hired to oversee their free labor force to build this promised land, well, they were doing it too. And those who wanted segregated churches then, those that still want it now, also. So far, the 70% of us that are doing our Christian duty haven't resulted in enough of us doing our basic civil duties. We're not even all that close to doing just church right. And another problem is the devil's never pinned a piece of oppressive legislation, voted for oppressive legislation, 
or voted to continuously uphold oppressively legislated systems. He's never shot a child in the park, a man in the back, or turned in a blank incident report claiming no injuries after shooting a woman at least eight times while she slept in her bed. That's not the spiritual realm. That's right here in flesh and blood. Racism and oppression isn't a spiritual problem. Police brutality and excessive force against anyone isn't a spiritual problem. Choosing to accept the normalcy of police brutality and the repeatedly exonerated excessive force and murder instead of addressing an uncomfortable societal cause for the disproportionality of its usage, that's not a spiritual problem. These are all people problems. We know these are systems we shouldn't stand for, but deep down, you like things the way they are, no matter how it affects your neighbor. America's grown to deflect these kinds of problems to either the realm of God or product of conspiracy because either excuse gets the populace off the hook for needing to personally change or personally admit anything. Instead, it's ancestors that are continuously blamed or elites, but you can't blame great-grandpa or your rich uncle for what you continue to allow today, and you can't blame the accuser either. Now, I'm not going down the conspiracy train, so let me just quickly say that real people are getting murdered by civil servants on the regular, and people are really upset about it, so to sit back and try to stay above the distraction just shows that you don't care one bit about what's going on around you. And you won't care until that brutality lands on your doorstep. The thing is, if we're not careful, American policing is so out of control right now, it just might. Like I said, it disproportionately affects us. It doesn't exclusively affect us. As for the realm of God, the whole thoughts and prayer approach to problem solving while otherwise just cheering from the bench thing where are church folk getting that from? Where does this idea that the proper biblical perspective on every issue is to just pray and wait on the Lord, where does that come from? Where to let Babylon continue to be Babylon? Sit back, get fat, make money, have babies, say some magic words, and just wait on Superman? What is that? Now we could go through some verses about Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me how his whole deal was resisting authority represented by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and legalism, how that got him killed. But I don't know if you'd care about that. See, the intricacies of the life that we profess to be God incarnate seem to be insignificant most of the time outside of the fact of them being sinless. We just want the blessing of the cross, you know, kind of like that mega church pastor out of Atlanta wants to recognize the blessing of slavery. We're not too interested in how we got here. We don't want to dwell on those things. We just want to be thankful for the blessing God has given us in it. We accept Jesus and we just we get eager to return to our lives with the mild, inconvenient sacrifice of maybe being just a little less awesome, having given up some kind of vice or obvious moral flaw that's probably killing us or someone else anyway. Just glad to know that we're avoiding a torturous death by fire in the future. As for me and my house, right? That's the phrase. So what happens to you and yours and your house is really not of my concern. You should pray and wait. <laughs> Where does that come from? I'm seriously asking. Sitting around feeling warm and cozy in our blessings 
doesn't match the biblical progression of prophets, priests, and kings. It matches the societies that they consistently rebuke, both historically and prophetically, but not their stories, not the stories of those on the path. It matches the nameless rich man begging for water in his torment, but not Lazarus, who found rest at Abraham's bosom. But let's back up a little bit further than that. Noah didn't wait for God to send rain and then start building an ark. Hebrews says that Abraham waited patiently for his promised child Isaac, but I bet if you asked Sarah, she'd have a different take on that. Jacob didn't wait on well-established social constructs to be voluntarily voted down by those benefiting from them the most when he stole the blessing and birthright of Esau, the oldest son. As a matter of fact, neither did his father Isaac. He was the little brother too, because Sarah didn't wait either. David didn't wait to grow up to start acting like a king or for God to provide appropriate armor for his battles. He just went. No, wait, Will. Didn't the prophet Isaiah say, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength? Yeah, he did. But I don't think that's really waiting on the Lord so much as it's hoping towards the Lord. You have to run out of strength to need it renewed. You have to be busy running and not getting weary, walking and not fainting, not resting on the sidelines. The prophet Jeremiah warned that waiting around for the Lord to fix things while social injustices continue under your nose makes you just as guilty of them as well. In chapter 2, 34 and 35. Things didn't go well for them after that. Speaking of, Daniel had to wait a long time in those consequences that Jeremiah prophesied about. But in the meantime, he didn't hide and wait and pray. He, he worked his way from captive into the king's court, despite the insane political opposition that would have come with that. So had Joseph before him in Egypt. Now Daniel is the one that's said to have predicted the Messiah's coming in 70 weeks of sevens. And Israel waited and prayed, and they got the answer from God that they waited and prayed for, but they disagreed with the manner of his protest. Jesus' idea of revolution was too non-violent, it was too progressive. Huh. But now we're in the New Testament, right? So it's more relevant to our day, I and mean, we love and appreciate the Judeo foundations of our precious religious systems, but we're Christians followers of Jesus Christ, those who hold the mystery of the testimony that he was divinity incarnate. He lived, died, and rose again. He's the example. Or is he our sacrifice? See, if you ask a Christian, why did Jesus die 99% of the time, they're going to say he died for our sins. That's not really true. That's not really why Jesus died. Jesus died for the same reason Martin Luther King Jr. did. He got up and said, enough is enough. You've abused your power, your position, and your circumstance. There's a better way of being, and this old way is done. People suffering from that old system started listening to them, and so those that were most interested in maintaining the status quo silenced him. See, that's that whole kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom is like... First shall be last, Sermon on the Mount stuff. It was radical subversion. Sacrificial atonement theories aside, 
Jesus wasn't led into the temple by the Jewish high priest and have the sins of the priestly leadership confessed over his body before getting his throat cut in some solemn ritual. He didn't have the sins of the entire world confessed over him and sent off free into the wilderness either. The veil tearing and the whole Barabbas scene give you glimmers of Day of Atonement imagery and typology. You're supposed to see that? But the text says that the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross for committing treason. Now, he didn't actually do anything to overthrow the empire, but he undermined the Roman political structure because of the radicalism in his rhetoric. People around him hailed him as the king of the Jewish nation, and that was Caesar's title. Thus, treason. But to get there, he undermined the religio-political structure of the Jewish temple system and society by purposely irritating their legalist views around all kinds of things, including the Sabbath, raging against their enmeshment of spirit and commerce. He associated with criminals. He touched the sick. He spoke to women without their husbands or fathers around because he respected their individual agency, whether they were Hebrew, Samaritan, or Canaanite. They weren't property. And he said that the only way to fix the injustices of their societal hierarchy was to completely invert it. How else can first become last? That's what got him killed. The Sanhedrin plots against Jesus right after he gives the sheep and goat speech in Matthew 25, where he says that God accepts those who feed the hungry, give drink to those who thirst, take in strangers, clothe the naked, care for the sick and visit the imprisoned, those that go out of their way to do for the least valued in society. When God then turns to those who've been worshiping him and calling him Lord, paying their tithes, doing their Christian duty of righteous living, comfortable with the status quo despite its effect on their neighbors, and God says, depart from me, you are cursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus was really expanding on that whole Jeremiah thing there, and when he's done talking, he turns to the disciples and he says, you know what, they're going to kill me for that. And the chief priests and the elders, they turn to each other and they say, yeah, yeah, we're going to kill this guy. And they know they can't do it in the streets. They'll start a riot. So they conspire to trap him, trick him into admitting that he's the son of God and thus a blasphemer. But once they actually have him at trial and directly ask him that, he doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah, the son of God. He says, you said that, but I'm telling you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the ancient one. Jesus didn't claim to be the son of God here. He directly sidestepped the issue altogether. But the high priest rips up his own clothes, accuses him of blasphemy, cancels the need for any further witnesses, and the whole group starts spitting in Jesus's face and punching him. Now, if they expected to catch Jesus in a blasphemous statement, if that was the plan, why such an extreme, seemingly surprised, knee-jerk, violent response to his deflection? I think it's because Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man was even more radical than him claiming to be the Son of God. The idea of the Son of God, the Messiah, was that he was supposed to rescue and restore the kingdom of Israel. He would raise a just and godly worldly kingdom for Israel to rule over and over the nations that have been oppressing them. The Messiah was a person 
coming to reestablish them. In contrast, the Daniel 7, one like the Son of Man, is something different. Now, he's given authority, glory, and sovereign power in the worship of all nations and peoples of every language. The Son of Man is given everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Once the bad four beasts have had their time, the Son of Man reigns forever. Now, this is a promise from a dream that Daniel had while Israel was split in Babylonian exile, that Jeremiah stuff. A dream that was interpreted in its own chapter in verses 16 to 18, and that interpretation says that the four beasts represent four kings that would rise. But the holy people of the Most High would receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. Those holy people were represented by one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, according to the chapter where this concept comes from, was not an individual person. It was a people group. It was Israel itself. What was blasphemous was that Jesus, this new rabbi on the block, had just claimed the inheritance and birthright of his big brother. Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you if I'm the son of God or not. I'm going to do you one better. I'm the one God is giving power and kingdom and dominion to. Not the religio-political system that y'all have got going on over here that you think's based on us. They called him a blasphemer because they felt that his claim basically meant that the angel that interpreted Daniel's dream was wrong. But he was really telling these people of the book that the way they've been reading and interpreting scripture was not compliant with the spirit that had inspired it. But this isn't a group of randoms, this is the church. The group he's saying this to are those that are holding scripture to the letter. They've been chosen of God hereditarily and spiritually. They've lived in a system where their power and prosperity supposedly proved their position of favor. They were waiting on God to come justify their culture as it stood because of who history had shown them to be destined to be. They weren't there to be told that they needed a change and that that change had come. They weren't there to be told that the kingdom wasn't just for them anymore, but for all people. They weren't ready to hear that Gentile lives mattered, too. Jesus' claim, his whole life, is centered around radical social upheaval. He didn't stroll into the synagogue once a week and just mind his P's and Q's. And he didn't tell any of his followers to do that either. They didn't sit around praying and waiting. They pushed. They pushed against the society, the religion, and the cultural biases around them until it got them killed. Praying and waiting for God to supernaturally fix our problems is not the Christian way. Go ye therefore is. So I've got to ask you again. Will it stop you? Or can we be different this time? Can this be the generation that actually seeks to change something? Will you be one that pushes? Or will you pray and wait? Are you here for this? Or are you not listening to this?